Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to watchnebula.com slash not overthinking with a little hyphen thing in between the not and the overthinking. So watchnebula.com slash not dash overthinking. Through Nebula, you'll firstly get access to all of our podcast episodes ad-free. Secondly, you'll see exclusive content from me and a load of other educational-ish creators. And thirdly, it directly supports this podcast. So you'll incentivize me and Tame to record more episodes. My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello, and welcome back to Not Overthinking. Taymor, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. We've just come back from a friend's birthday dinner in London. Uh, it's about half past 11, but I'm not too tired. I feel kind of energized after the, you know, after the socializing. Oh, fantastic. And uh, that energy is perfect to segue to our, our sponsor for this week. And that sponsor is Skillshare. So, Tamor, can you remember what Skillshare does? Skillshare is like Netflix for online courses. Is that right? Yeah. Online courses, online classes. I think classes is the word that they, that they like to use. But essentially, it's an, it's an online community where you can get a monthly subscription and you get access to all sorts of classes from things like creativity and entrepreneurship and graphic design and web design and podcasting and, and even making YouTube videos. So I've got my own uh, YouTube, uh, how to how to edit videos for YouTube, three and a half hour long online class on Skillshare uh, for how to use Final Cut Pro. Are there any other classes on Skillshare that you've taken that you kind of like? I would quite like to do a class about improv. Improv. I hear improv is a, a thing worth like doing, regardless of whether you actually want to do improv. I, I don't, I'm not particularly interested in doing improv, but apparently it has wide reaching consequences. Ah, so I, I thought something similar when I was in my first year of med school. <laughs> and so I attended some improv classes. I think I remember you. I remember this yeah yeah which were actually quite good there was a lot of kind of yes and uh, yeah things like that stuff yeah yeah um there's a class that i'm taking like actually actually taking at the moment by a guy called simon van buoy and he's like this published author who's published like eight different books and he's like talking about how to kind of create a a writing habit that sticks and stuff like that oh okay yeah and you know like a big part of making decent youtube videos is having a good sort of like writing routine and kind of doing it every day and having a system for it so that's kind of what this guy's talking about um and another class that, that i always like to recommend is uh, my new friend Thomas Frank's productivity masterclass because you know I absolutely love productivity and and all of that stuff. So yeah, thank you Skillshare for sponsoring this uh, episode of the podcast. And if you want, you if you guys listening want, you can sign up to a free trial of Skillshare by going to skillshare.com forward slash not overthinking, and that'll give you a two month free trial in which you can sample any of the classes that you like, and you can even check out my own class on how to edit videos if you want to become a YouTuber. Anyway, what are we talking about this week, Tamil? So this week, this is something that you're very keen on talking about. So, okay, so just just a bit of a uh, bit of context for the listeners. I don't know, I don't know about you, but basically, Ali, every time we sit down, it's like, oh man, we should do a podcast. I feel a little bit anxious because you know, we don't have topics prepared beforehand, and it's always like, oh no, what if we can't come up with a good topic? And so, what we're doing this week, uh, this was Ali's idea, is we're experimenting with a new kind of format where you know, if there is a week where there isn't something that either of us has been sort of thinking deeply about during. That that week or whatever, then what we can do is sort of, you know, I read a lot of Twitter, Ali reads a lot of Twitter now. Uh, instead of us trying to come up with the insights all by ourselves, we can find people who have tweeted very insightful things and discuss those. And so this week, what we're doing is we are analyzing a tweet storm. So a series of tweets uh, by a guy called Naval Ravikant. Uh, and so what's Naval's deal, Tamil? You're more familiar with his bio than I am, I think. Right. Let me just uh, get it up so I don't uh, What the miss the bio. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Sorry, it had to be done. Very good. Might have to uh, tick the explicit content in the <laughs> in the in the podcast player. 
Cool. Uh, yeah, I don't want to misrepresent him, but uh, Naval is, I guess, primarily at the moment, the founder of a company called AngelList. It's kind of a techie thing. It's an online platform where people can invest in startups and startups can post jobs and things like that. So AngelList basically wants to be uh, the sort of end-to-end thing, sort of like the end-to-end thing for startups, basically. Like when you launch your startup... What on earth does end-to-end mean? Sorry? What, do, what the hell does end-to-end mean? Basically, they want to be like the destination that startups go to... I guess grow slash scale something to that effect. So you know, when if you want to start a company, and you're just starting out. What you might do is like, uh, you know, make a prototype of your product and put it on a website called Product Hunt, where people can sort of see new products that are being released uh, and sort of try them out. And so uh, Product Hunt is owned by AngelList. When your company gets a bit further along and you want to raise some investment, uh, still via AngelList, you can you know say, hey, this is my company. Uh, I'm raising a seed round. I want to raise this this money. And then investors who are also on the platform can check you out get connected with you you know talk to you and, and all via the platform they can invest in your company uh and and so on so they, they kind of want to be this sort of one-stop shop for various ne- startup needs and so naval is the founder of uh angel list he's also a very active uh angel investor so he puts his own money in uh in, in startups so he's a, a, a rich guy who invests in startups he's a rich guy who, inv- who invests in startups i i think his his story is particularly interesting because he really is you know i, I you know uh, to, to whatever extent anyone can be self-made, he's relatively self-made. So I, I think, uh, again, I don't want to misrepresent him. I also don't want to read his whole uh, life story on Wikipedia before saying this. I'm just going to say it. Uh, I think I think basically he and his family moved from India to, I think, New York. Uh, he I, And I think like uh, he was sort of raised by a single mom and he and his brother just spent like a lot of time in the library because that was sort of the only place that was open uh, and or safe for them uh, for, for a lot of the day. And so like uh, he's just a massive reader, read a ton of stuff uh and uh fast forward many years started angel list uh angel is going very well uh i think he's very wealthy off of the back of that uh, he does angel investing but he's also one of the more sort of philosophically leaning uh startup guys indeed uh, his his website is the angel philosopher.com <laughs> so read into that what you will uh yeah so he yeah he's a, a bit of a fancies himself a bit of a philosopher and uh he has some very interesting uh ideas and thoughts on how to create uh sort of wealth uh, and that's what we're going to look at today he did a tweet storm not too long ago uh, called How to Get Rich Without Getting Lucky. Uh, and this is very popular. Uh, this was, I think his, the, I think this tweet storm and a few other tweet storms uh, ended up just getting a lot of traction and some guy actually turned them into a podcast of like Naval Ravikant sound bites where he's basically like reading his tweet storms and maybe elaborating on them a little bit. Oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> that is kind of cool, yeah. Uh, anyway, there's some backstory. We, I, I, I guess yeah, we're going to go through this tweet storm and uh, yeah, just talk about it i suppose but i've just got to say like i like to i like to dunk on tech bros on twitter a lot and lots of people do it's just kind of funny sort of taking the piss out of tech bros but discussing a naval tweet storm on your own podcast has got to be like the most tech bro thing as possible <laughs> the only thing that can make this more tech bro is if we were both smoking jewel <laughs> jewel pods well, what on earth are the jewel pods oh it's one of these like startup vape things like, yeah, whatever oh is it oh yeah was that your major misgiving about this podcast what oh the tech bro thing yeah um kind it's yeah kind of it's just a bit tech bro <laughs> yeah okay no fair, fair, fair enough i can i can see where you're coming from in saying that this is very tech bro i think that a lot of our listeners are probably not tech bros and therefore yes fine yeah you know, i know i know you know while, while while this guy is a household name amongst amongst the tech bros you know yes. I, I would venture that the majority of our listeners don't know who he is and yes. therefore you know i think this is this is some kind of value add yes but we all know this so that's fine anyway 
the tweet storm is entitled how to get rich without getting lucky and you know so his first point is seek wealth not money or status wealth is having assets that earn while you sleep money is how we transfer time and wealth status is your place in the social hierarchy that's very uh, very uh, fortune cookie seek wealth not money or status wealth is having assets that earn while you sleep so i mean that's pretty pretty standard advice right like the whole passive income thing trying to build uh you know assets like real estate or assets like you know selling digital products selling online courses like the the sorts of stuff that essentially let you make money while you sleep whereas money is how we transfer time and wealth what does that mean so i suppose he's saying that money is simply an exchange of value and status is our place in the social hierarchy so i guess that the whole point of this first tweet is that we should be trying to build up these assets that earn money while we sleep rather than quote trying to get rich yeah i yeah i think the the status thing is like uh you know don't see status is like a, a bit like whatever it's like yeah everyone kind of broadly gets that i think the interesting thing in this first tweet is the distinction between wealth and money and i think this is i don't know i think i this was something that was quite interesting when i first uh sort of started learning about the concept and i think like the the issue is that sort of i think the default financial literacy that people have is that like you know to get rich you have a good job that pays you lots of money Mm. (laughs) and i think very few people i have very limited experience of the world of business and careers and things but i think very few people get rich off of their base salary that they earn from their job that is typically not what makes you uh rich it's typically other things and and this idea of like wealth um as this sort of uh i guess what i don't know how would you kind of define it to be too honest i think my understanding of like what wealth really means it just comes from sort of reading about it in lots of different contexts and so you know we could read a definition of like wealth is this i don't know if that you know do you know what i mean i know what you mean okay so let's let's move on so we it, the first one was seek wealth not money or status his his second tweet is understand that ethical wealth creation is possible if you secretly despise wealth it will elude you I think this is really important. Like, I think part part of the reason that this whole money wealth thing kind of has a bad rep, and even now, sort of, even though you and I are quite used to talking about this stuff, I still feel a bit uneasy, kind of throwing the words like money and wealth around on a podcast. Yeah, it's just it, it feels a bit crude for some reason, but I don't think it should. Yeah, I and mean, what you're saying is, if you secretly despise wealth, it will elude you. Uh, ethical wealth creation is possible. I think I've got a few friends from from university, the more sort of extreme left-leaning variety, who probably despise, probably secretly despise wealth. Uh, Like I've got a few friends who would feel um, some form of moral superiority because they're working, uh, you know, they've graduated from from Cambridge and they're working in like a a Greg's or a McDonald's or something, feeling as if they're doing good, honest, hard labor, rather than, for example, creating wealth in some kind of hedge fund investment bank. I think that's a certain form of sort of signaling that a subset of my friends would and and still do engage in what do you mean by creating wealth in a hedge fund or an investment bank as in they would feel themselves morally superior for working at greg's rather than for you know doing the standard thing of taking your cambridge degree and going into going to work in a bank oh okay right you're not making a comment about the kind of work that banks do oh god no as being like uh, wealth producing uh no um but as in the point i'm making is that for the for those people i think i think they do secretly despise the 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 idea of wealth okay Um, But anyway, point number three, ignore people playing status games. Oh, this is one of your favorite topics. Love it. They gain status by attacking people playing wealth creation games. I don't really get it. (laughs) What's he saying here? It's a bit cynical. Naval, Naval, mate, I think this is a little bit cynical. I think there is a lot of attacking of people playing wealth creation games. I don't know. It's kind of like, uh, I I feel like you can sort of, 
split up sort of what, what goes on in sort of society as yeah basically in everything that goes on in society some people are doing something and other people are watching the thing and so and you know this applies in like lots of different spheres you know in in, in most spheres of most people's lives we're kind of watching various things maybe in one or two spheres we're like doing doing the thing you know so in, the, in the arena a consuming versus creating <laughs> yeah i guess consuming versus versus creating and and you know like um I know, as I guess, as like a content creator, you're sort of uh, that's the creating part of your life, and broadly, most other aspects of your life, you're kind of consuming things. Yeah, I don't uh, really create any food; I just consume it. <laughs> yeah, and so I think he's kind of talking about that. Like, uh, I think he's he's talking about how the the consume the you know in the in the fields where uh, there are some fields where some people are creating uh, and other people are consuming. I think this happens in every field, and often the people you know the people consuming like to talk about and uh, discuss. You know, the people creating the thing you know for example people make movies people watch movies and criticize movies and talk about them you know people start startups journos nowadays like to hate on startups and so there was this recent piece uh, about the away ceo did you read this oh yes yeah there's, there's all this kind of stuff where someone there are some people in the arena there there is a min- minority of people in the arena in whatever field there is a majority of people spectating and the spectators you know kind of like to dunk on the uh you know the the combatants something like that okay and so so I think he's saying that the spectators are playing the status game. The people in the arena are playing uh, the wealth creation game. And yeah, there's always a bit of like spectators trying to dunk on the uh, people in the arena. Okay. So, so the next one I think is, is is more understandable than the previous ones. He says, you're not going to get rich renting out your time. You must own equity, a piece of a business to gain your financial freedom. And this is, I suppose this is probably the, the paradigm shifting insight that sort of like people will get at some point in their lives. Um, for you and me, I guess it was through reading and sort of just getting um, interested in this whole like tech startup scene to recognize that the whole idea of exchanging time for money is fine in the short term, but it's not a viable long-term strat if you're kind of optimizing for wealth creation. Yeah. And he says that you must own equity, a piece of a business to gain your financial freedom. I think like recently, ever since, you know, like Jeff Bezos became like very rich uh, off the back of Amazon and stuff and people are saying, oh, he's, he's like got hundreds of billions of dollars and stuff. Um, there have been a few interesting kind of mathsy comparisons. I don't know if you've come across these, whereby it says that even if you earned, you know, five thousand yeah. dollars a day, you would have to have worked, you know, from the time of Jesus Christ for the last two thousand two thousand years, and you still wouldn't be as rich as Jeff Bezos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because and that just seems mind-boggling because yeah. we all would intuitively intuitively think that five thousand dollars a day is like a you know pretty good salary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you would think that's a lot of money. Yeah, I only get about like. I don't know half of that. Yeah, half of that. <laughs> yeah, it's really <laughs> on the, on that note. Actually, uh, sort of as a, uh, I, th- I think we talked about this this last week. There was this YouTuber, Graham Stephen, who who like literally we makes. Didn't, we didn't talk about. This. Oh yeah, yeah. He literally talking. makes five thousand dollars a day, like oh, okay. from his YouTube AdSense. Nice. <laughs> Just like that. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but the point is that Jeff Bezos is rich, and all these rich people are rich because of the businesses they own and the equity in those businesses, as yeah. opposed to their their day job. Yeah. Um, I also I also like this idea of financial freedom. So is that something that you think about? lot because it's 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 something that i spend a lot of time thinking about yeah i know you think about it a lot i don't spend that much time thinking about it because it is something i'm interested in i just think like the sort of you know if the startup goes well i'll have financial freedom okay yeah that simple (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I suppose you're working in a sphere where that's just, that's kind of, it's it's sort of a zero or one. Like either it goes well, in which case you're sorted or it doesn't, in which case you'll have to. Well, in, the, in which case you, 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 you do round two, you try again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like, you know, it's a, it's a crazy ecosystem where that's possible, you know, this doesn't go well. You know, if, if you try and start a company, it doesn't go well. You know, if you kind of were sensible about it, you can have, you know, get people to invest in you again and go for round two, <laughs> round three and so on. So all of the rounds are in a way sort of as, as soon as any one of them becomes successful, suddenly you're financially free, whatever that means. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so the reason I think a hell of a lot about it is because my default career at medicine is not the sort of career in yeah. which you become financially free, at least in the UK. Um, in America, the salaries of doctors are absolutely huge, sort of in the sort of $300,000, $400,000 a year range, ranging up to sort of in the millions per year because it's a private healthcare system. But in the UK, unless you do private practice and a lot of it, you're sort of capped at about 100000 and a bit per year, which is you know obviously a huge amount of money. But the reason I think about this a lot is I think I've, I've talked about about this before but often if I'm if I'm chatting to uh, doctors at work I like to ask the question that you know if if you won the lottery would you still do medicine yeah uh, and invariably they either say no or I would go part-time yeah and then the next question is okay well why don't you go part-time now and the answer is always oh well I need to pay the mortgage and put the kids through private school and you know yeah yeah, yeah. stuff like that the yacht uh, yeah absolutely and so to me this idea of financial freedom is very important because I I don't want to be in a position whereby the money that i'm i'm earning through my day job is the thing that is necessarily funding my lifestyle because then that is sort of shackles and you're kind of then shackled to doing work even if you don't like it because you have to because you've got to pay the bills yeah um so that's why i think think about this a lot and think that you know anyone who's interested in at least for me okay i don't i don't want to say anyone but but at least for me this this goal of financial freedom is super important because ultimately i'm optimizing for happiness and meaning and i feel like i'd live a happier life if i wasn't shackled to a job that i didn't necessarily enjoy yeah absolutely i I mean i think it's uh i think it's really important to me as well i think i'm fortunate in that it's uh it's still aligned with my day job i suppose um but if it weren't i would definitely uh be striving towards it through other means cool so next tweet you will get rich by giving society what it wants but does not yet know how to get at scale all right man this is this sounds really really absolutely i don't know i mean i kind of get what he means in the context of i don't know like startups and things basically saying like, like solve a problem at scale yeah, look, I get what it means. Yeah, I've been in. You know, we, you and I probably understand this, and and like understand what he's trying to get at here by saying at scale. You yeah, know, the, 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 I, th- I think the at scale bit is potentially tricky. Yeah. Okay. I think it essentially comes down to it. I think it it, it kind of comes comes down to the thing about like trading time for money versus not trading time for money. You know, trading time for money is not scalable because you have a finite amount of time. You know, if uh, if if you if you only made money by like doing work. <laughs> <laughs> No, if you only made money by spending spending your time and that sort of directly leads to you having money, there is a very obvious cap to how much money you can make. If you can somehow do something where you do it once and you can repeatedly make money from that thing that you've already done, for example, you uh, make a YouTube video and people keep watching that YouTube video or, you know, you build some software and you repeatedly sell that same software, it kind of lets you scale up your sort of wealth, your your money, uh, not linearly with time. So it's not like, you know, to make twice as much money, I have to spend twice as much time. It's like to make 10 times as much money, I have to spend, you know, an extra maybe, 10 minutes to yeah. <laughs> make a Google ad or something. Yeah, precisely. And so it's about like, you know, the way the way to he's I think he's saying the way to get rich is by 
having a repeatable formula that does not tie, does not take time for you to execute. Okay, I think that's a pretty good definition. I couldn't have come up with anything, anything better than that. So his next one is pick an industry where you can play long-term games with long-term people. Again, kind of abstract. This but- is another abstract thing, which I get it because I've been, you know, I've been drinking the Navarre Kool-Aid for a long time. Like lots of people in, in my online circles talk about, you know, long-term games and long-term people. So uh, I think I've been drinking the Naval Kool-Aid for less time, but uh, so uh, I, th- I think I, it was about a year ago and I mentioned this this on like my email email newsletter that week because I was like, oh yes, this is great. There was some kind of tweet from someone else. Uh, I think it was actually from MKBHD, the, the tech YouTuber. That's, I think, or he might've retweeted it, whatever. Uh, it said something along the lines of, in, in, order to be, in order to be successful, just pick anything and do it for 10 years. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, that, like, that, that was genuinely revolutionary for me because at the time I, I was having this like crisis of purpose about this youtube channel and thinking oh you know when am i going to know if it's if it's going well how do i think about growth all this kind of stuff and then i saw that tweet you know just pick something and work on it for 10 years yeah i was like oh damn i'm only yeah. a year into my youtube channel yeah, yeah, yeah. i've got another nine years to go at least <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is fine yeah and i think that that just that sort of pattern is repeated in almost every industry if you can do anything for long enough then it's it's you know the chances of it, of it being successful however you, however you define that are going to be pretty high yeah and and to be honest i think like I think this long-termism is something I really lacked when I was younger. I think it was the same for you. Right? Like when we were in school and stuff, we were both all about trying to make a quick buck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, was, it was all about that making money you online. Just want to like make a quick buck online <laughs> for some reason. I don't know what the reason was. I guess it was just the, the idea of it was cool. It's not like yeah. it's not like I needed a tenner or anything. But the idea of making a tenner online, yeah. like, but not leaving the house, that was pretty interesting for some reason. And I think if I'd started investing in more you know, long, long-term ways of, you know, creating wealth and creating money. Like, for example, learning how to code five years sooner rather yeah. than doing psychic reading, <laughs> you know, whatever. I think I think the long-termism is really important. And I think I used to be extremely, I, I think I am still more short-term thinking than I'd like to be. So it sounds like you're saying that in, in school, had Skillshare.com forward slash not overthinking existed, <laughs> you could have invested in a monthly subscription for less than $9 a month and you could have taught yourself all sorts of skills and that would have probably led to far greater value for you in the long term rather than spending that money on, I don't know, a meal out with friends or something where you can easily just chill at your own house. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, this uh, this particular uh, tweet, pick an industry where you can play long-term games with long-term people, also reminds me of a recent uh, James Clear tweet that I, I retweeted, uh, oh, which was... Of you did. Of course I did. I love James Clear. Um, which was along the lines of... Uh, it, 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 was, it, was, it was also about long-termism. It was saying that do things today that will benefit you in 10 years' time. Yeah. And it was saying that every day do at least one thing that will benefit you in 10 years' time. You know, g- start going to the gym and lifting weights today because it'll benefit you in 10 years. Eat healthily today because it'll benefit you in 10 years yeah and when when you have that sort of long-term outlook you know you're probably gonna do pretty well in life <laughs> yeah doing these yeah the other thing around long-termism which I, I think i mentioned this on the podcast before but i feel very like i feel like it's pr- it feels profound to me is that when you okay there's a good tweet that i, I think there's a good insta paper highlight that sums it up should I find the highlight or should I just try and summarize it? <laughs> All right, I'll just try and summarize. Essentially, we go through most of our life in like these windows where you have like the next milestone. Yeah? Until age 18, you have these like windows of like one year things where it's like, okay, I'm in, I, I'm in this grade or year in school for a year. And then it's like, oh, you're eight and it's year nine and it's year 10. And there's some like milestones. It's like GCSEs. And you know, a couple of years later, there's like A-levels. And it's like, okay, the next, the next thing is like university. And like you go through like the first, you know, if you go to university, for example, the first 21, 22 years of your life, 
in some kind of system with some kind of next step or milestone or hoop to jump through within the next one to two years. And just the fact that you've lived the first 22, 21, 22 years of life in that kind of framework where there, there is always some next thing to mm. achieve, to try and achieve or strive for, but that next thing is always one to two years away. It kind of means that that's the sort of two, the sort of two year chunk is the default sort of time, uh, sort of time horizon by which you kind of evaluate things. So it's like, okay, I've just started this job, you know, I'll work there for a couple of years and then I'll think about my next move kind of thing. And everything is always in like these sort of two year uh, gaps. And I I think when you if you try and break out of that mindset or that framework of like two year chunks and you kind of think you're like yeah I'm gonna I'm probably gonna be alive for like eighty years statistically speaking um, I I don't know what the actual thing is nowadays but let's just say eighty years then you you can you know you can come up with some pretty you can come up with some conclusions that you, there is no way you'd arrive at these if you were thinking in, in in terms of like the two year mindset conclusions like for example you know I'm gonna live my life I'm gonna live for the next eighty years you know if I value things like personal growth and you know widening my box you know my my perspectives and things like that if i value that kind of stuff it is a no-brainer for me to spend at least two out of the next you know two out of the next 80 years living in a different country you know with different people it is an absolute no-brainer and you would never reach that conclusion i I mean i I think it's no-brainer to do like two out of the next 10 years and that's not a conclusion you'd reach if you're only thinking in terms of like two-year gaps and so if you think like in terms of like okay I have 80 years on this planet. You know, what are the things I care about? What kind of things can I actually do to achieve these things? It's like you, you reach these kinds of conclusions that you wouldn't reach otherwise. And I think that's pretty powerful. And, and I want us to sort of do more of that thinking. Oh, that is very powerful because I've, I've definitely noticed that, uh, this a lot in myself, like especially growing up with, with, with the whole uh, like it felt that from secondary school onwards, the uh, the goal of getting to a good university was always always the thing to optimize for. Yeah, and like so, you know, things like taking part in school plays and doing extracurricular activities was always somewhat in service of this idea of getting into a good university. Yeah, things like GCSEs and A levels were obviously in service of getting into a good university, and. I think like even now I get when I get messages from people being like, hey, uh, I'm you know, it's it's my summer of year 11, you know, when I'm 16. And I think I'm thinking of getting into med school. What sort of things should I be doing to increase my chances of getting in? Yeah. The way I advise people is usually by saying that, okay, well, I mean, you can do the basics. It takes about a week to get work experience. But then you've got the rest of the three months in the summer and spend spend that time working on skills and hobbies that will benefit you in the long run. Yeah. And I think it's very easy advice for me to just kind of dish out. But I think when I was when I was 16, and trying to optimize for getting into medical school would i have for example i don't know learn to code or learn to do illustration or learn to do public speaking better knowing it would benefit me in 10 years time probably not yeah um i think also it's very it's very easy for us to, i think paul graham had that recent article about uh, the thing to unlearn yeah uh, which was all about um this idea that when when we're growing up with the whole school college university system we are essentially being tested in, in certain ways and those tests are supposed to in a way uh, correlate with things like uh, like for example the idea of a test is that it should test what you've learned in the class and if the class was good and you learned well then you'll do well on the test but actually tests while that's their intention they don't in practice they don't test that they test how well you prepared for the test yeah and so you get this odd thing whereby people are learning things but asking the question of is this going to be on the test because if not then they're not going to bother learning yeah which completely defeats the purpose of the whole education thing yeah and he was he was making the point that um 
when so he's you know for, for, for people who don't know he's uh, one of the partners at Y Combinator which is a oh, he's, um, he's retired now he's retired now he's yeah. one of the ex-partners of Y Combinator sorry yeah. which is that firm that you applied for funding for and, yeah. and, and didn't get and but didn't get yeah. that's, a, that's a story that we, we've talked about at a, a, a different time um, essentially he's a very rich man who gives advice about startups and things and he was saying that a mistake he sees with loads of startups is that they're thinking in these short term hackable test uh, mindsets and that they're, they're in, in, in that they're asking him oh what's the secret to getting an investor to invest in your company you know what template should you be using for your powerpoint what day should you be approaching them on how do you write the perfect email yeah whereas in reality the way to get investors interested in your product is to make a really good product yeah <laughs> but we don't think about that first we think about the hackable side of it because we're just so used to preparing for these short-term tests that just test how well we've prepared for them yeah like if you kind of spend the first 22 years of your life uh, where there's always like it's always like okay what's the test and how can i beat the test and so once you're out of that system you're kind of looking around for okay what's the test ah i see a test i yeah. see i see some people with power yeah whose validation i it seems like i should have after i'd get that's the test how do i like beat how do i game the test kind of thing and actually even even after graduating from university there are still very easy milestones to think about in these in this sort of two-year time horizon so things like uh okay i've graduated now i should probably you know that that two-year law training contract until okay and now i'm uh so so like so starting off as a, as a trainee and now i'm a solicitor okay and then two years after that be like okay i should probably think about uh getting a house and trying getting on the property ladder and then i suppose two years after that is oh, i should probably think about getting married and say and yeah you know that whole path of getting a house getting a car getting getting married getting a promotion having a kid having the first kid having the second kid yeah it all fits very nicely into these like two-year time horizon windows yeah 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 which I suspect, you know, given the abundance of life advice out there that says that, you know, life is what happens when you're too busy doing other things yeah. and all this sort of stuff. I think a big part of that comes from this lack of long-termism um, that we feel, you know, just by default that we go into. Um, right, next one. So he says, the internet has massively broadened the possible space of careers. Most people haven't figured this out yet. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I think, I think think we have talked about this, at least at least in private, if not on this podcast, about how growing up, like the only, the only real career that we were exposed to was <laughs> being a doctor. <laughs> yeah. And just the fact that the internet exists means, I think like, Tim Urban, the guy behind the Wait But Why blog, um, had a really good uh, piece about this in his in one of his latest blog posts, where where he it's a, it's actually a really good blog blog post that we'll link uh, in the show notes. It's about how to find a meaningful career, and I was reading this while we were in Japan because this was something I was thinking about, and I'd never really read it in its entirety because it's like thirty thousand words long or something ridiculous. Um, but he says things like, you know, if you'd asked me ten years ago that what, what my job or what sort of job I wanted to do, I would not have even thought that you know being able to I I wouldn't even thought that i could say you know oh i just kind of sit in my in my bedroom writing ten thousand word articles and publish them a few times a year and that makes me money that mm. just doesn't seem it's, yeah. it's just not a job that you would think exists it's not in the uh university careers fair no <laughs> definitely not um and yeah when did you first realize that that your job didn't have to be a, a defined job because i suppose it was different for me because i always knew i was going to be a doctor so that's very defined um my job is a fairly well-defined job i'm not doing something like tim urban where i'm i'm, pl- I'm playing a pretty well defined game to be honest but i i think after watching the social network before that i was like you know the starting stuff and making stuff is really cool after watching the social network it's like whoa i could actually do this like this is a thing people do this is like a viable thing i was like that's what i want to do um so i don't know i mean i don't think i'm really i'm not like tim urban Fair. anyway next one play iterated games all the returns in life whether in wealth relationships or knowledge come from compound interest okay so again like we both know what this means because we've drunk the kool-aid <laughs> but yeah <laughs> What does iterated games mean for the uh, the less Kool-Aid drinky people? 
it sort of comes back to i, I think it's, it's referring to you know feedback loops which again <laughs> if you drunk the kool-aid you know exactly what i mean uh if you haven't drunk the kool-aid it's like okay so for example if you even the phrase drinking the kool-aid <laughs> is a very kool-aid drinky phrase but yeah i anyway. think it's just an american phrase i i yeah i, I, I quite like it um personally oh, have you have you have you had kool-aid i don't think it's a drink mate is it not i swear i swear it's a drink i don't think it's a drink are you sure let's google it is kool-aid a drink dude kool-aid <laughs> is now a drink kool-aid is a kool-aid with a k is a drink (laughs) you look like an idiot now (laughs) all right cool i guess (laughs) (laughs) you've not been drinking enough of the (laughs) kool-aid anyway sorry continue play iterated games what what does he mean by that it's about like feedback loops loops and like improving on things so for example if the game you're playing is like I feel even this framing of like everything as a game is yeah. pretty like <laughs> pretty tech bro. <laughs> it's pretty tech bro. I think it's it's a useful framing. Um, basically, by feedback loop, you know, people ba- sort of mean this idea that like you do an action, you get some response, and then based on that response, you can like figure out how to do a better action next time. So, for example, if you are playing tennis and you know there's a tennis ball machine on the other side of the court that's just firing balls right in the same place to your forehand, and you're hitting like a forehand every second. You know, that's a really tight fe- tight feedback loop. After each forehand, you know, it, internally you can kind of judge like, was that good? What was bad about that? What can I improve? And then the next second you have the next ball and you can like, you know, put that stuff into action. That's a really tight feedback loop and you can sort of improve really quickly that way. I really like ice skating for this reason as well because the feedback loop is essentially each time you go around the rink. Like when you go around the rink, the first time when you get on the ice, presumably you're a bit rusty because you haven't done it for a while. Uh, and then, you know, by the time you've, you've gone around once, it's all started to come back. And then the next time you go around you're like okay you know i want to start time <laughs> yeah sorry Cross yeah yeah, time. yeah i want to start you, you start sort of pushing the boundaries and each time you go around the rink uh you sort of you know push the boundaries more and more and kind of and you can really feel yourself improving every single time you go around and and then you think whoa like three times i you know five minutes ago when i had had only gone around it like twice i was almost falling over every time now I'm, I'm basically fine and so that's like a feedback loop and naval is sort of advocating for finding uh good feedback loops in whatever you do so for example uh i don't know in in sort of medicine what's the sort of um i guess so his, his next point is uh, all the returns in life whether in wealth relationships or knowledge come from compound interest and the idea of compound interest this idea that you know if you were to improve by one percent every day after a year you'd end up being 33 times better or something ridiculous than, yeah. than you were at the start because you know if you had 100 pounds and you you know had you know a five percent increase that was compounded over time yeah then in year one it would be 105 and then in year two it would be five percent of that 105 would yeah. be a bit more and then it's then five percent of that 107.5 which is a bit more yeah and over time you actually get this very kind of exponential increase in how good you become compared to the start and i guess what he's saying is that the earlier you can start playing these games in all aspects of your life and recognizing the effect of compound interest the effect of just getting a little bit better like and doing that a lot that is sort of the iteration on that so things like going to the gym if you can increase your weights by one percent every time you go to the gym eventually you'll you know quite quickly you'll become pretty hench if you can continue this yeah um equally in in terms of relationships or in terms of knowledge if you can improve in some way or another by even one percent every time yeah that it becomes an iterated game that you can then you know that really good returns will come from yeah i think i think tim tim ferris is very big on uh, feedback loops and i think uh one of tim ferris's like favorite people who he interviews a lot and stuff is a guy called josh wade skin who's like uh this like i don't know pro chess player pro like jujitsu guy like just pro at so many different things and his his entire secret to getting so good at so many things is like 
figuring out how to build the feedback loop. And so, for example, I think in, in like surfing, for example, the feedback loop is maybe look, the last time, the one time I did surfing, do you remember in Cornwall? Oh, yeah. uh, when we were like, I don't know, eight or something. Mm. Uh, I think the feedback loop is maybe like 10 minutes or something. Like you paddle out with the surfboard, you wait there for a wave, you know, you try and ride the wave and then like you get washed up ashore and then you sort of drag it, drag it, drag, board all drag, the it way back. Dra- yeah. drag it back out. You do the same thing. And so you're, you're kind of limited by sort of, uh, yeah, basically the sort of go, going in with the wave and then going back out. That's sort of the feedback loop. And, and any improvements you make have to be, you know, every 15 minutes, every every 10 minutes or something. Um, and Josh Waitskin has found this like device that basically lets you, I, I mean, it, it basically lets you be surfing continuously. Like you're not reliant on the wave coming in and out. Uh, this sort of device almost like, uh, it's it's called, um, all right, the name, it's called like a foil, a hydrofoil or something. It's, it's basically this device where you, you can basically, you can sort of surf without waves. And that means the feedback loop is not now like 10 minutes or however long it takes for the wave to just sort of uh, drag you in and then you should go back out. The feedback loop is now like every two seconds when you are riding this you know non-existent wave on the water and ironically i don't know if i'm using ironically correctly doing this hydrofoiling thing because it has such a tight feedback loop of riding the wave that is a much better way to get better at surfing than actual surfing because like you're you're specifically training the thing that matters and so like thinking about okay what what thing do i need to train and how do i like get a good feedback loop around it i think that's like a powerful idea oh okay i've actually not heard that particular analogy before and that makes a lot of sense to a lot of the things that I've, I've been trying to do like i noticed that when i was learning guitar i and and following this defined justinguitar.com online course yeah that had like a really good feedback loops because like because we're, with a musical instrument especially if it's something like a guitar where it's, it's kind of reliant on the shape of your hand like you know the bear and the old lady and the claw Friend, friends reference i don't know if you remember when phoebe is talking about the different chords and teaching joey no she's like you know this is how you play c chord but like call it the bear because it kind of looks like a bear claw <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. stuff like that um you're you immediately have that feedback loop like you play the chord and you and you can hear that it sounds wrong or that yeah. it feel it feels bad yeah um and that's why this online course like really takes you through the exercises that ex- that exploits the fact that this, this this feedback loop is so short yeah and then i like you know i haven't really materially like improved at the guitar in the last two years or so because i just haven't you actively yeah. practiced it i yeah. just kind of pick up the guitar sling it on my shoulders yeah play some Sheeran or some john denver and there is no improvement in there at yeah. all so you know <laughs> i will make a more of a concerted effort to continue the justin guitar online course because he, he knows what it's doing yeah it's free um okay let's do a few more so pick business partners with high intelligence energy and above all integrity yeah, yeah. pretty uncontroversial yeah and don't partner with cynics and pessimists their beliefs are self-fulfilling yeah we've talked about this on the podcast i think cynicism and pessimism is uh have we talked about it on the podcast haven't we i don't know have we have we done an episode about is it okay to complain i think it's about the complaining episode i think we've done one yeah. i think i said something along the lines of i used to think like being a cynic ne- ne- cool. negativity yeah just negativity in general was like cool uh, it's yeah cool learn to sell learn to build if you can do both you will be unstoppable i think this is what this this sounds nice i think it sounds super abstract like if someone is if so if you tell this advice to someone it's like what, what the hell am I meant to do with this man? Like, what yeah. do you mean, let's sell, let's build? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's, so, uh, let's move. I, I don't know. Let's move on. This okay. is, it's too abstract. It's like yeah, fine. Uh, arm yourself with specific knowledge, accountability, and leverage. Specific knowledge is knowledge that you cannot be trained for. If society can train you, it can train someone else and replace you. Specific knowledge is found by pursuing your genuine curiosity and passion rather than whatever is hot right now. Building specific knowledge will feel like play to you, but will look like work to others. I think that last one is 
particularly yeah. re- resonates with me. Okay, how so? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just think about like how I got into tech and stuff. It wasn't because I was trying to like build a career out of this thing. Just a cool thing that I was playing around with before I even knew this was like a viable career. But to be honest, it's like very limited advice because like... I don't know if the thing that feels like play to you happens to be very directly uh, sort of map directly maps onto something you can do to make money or, you know, something you can do as a career. Good on you. If you're spe- if the thing that feels like play to you is, you know, I don't know, gardening or something, it's harder to monetize. I don't know. You can work in the garden. Uh-huh. Okay. That's not that hard to monetize. So this is almost exactly what Paul Graham says in one of his other essays, which is the uh, bus ticket, uh, the bus ticket collector theory of genius. Yeah. Have you, have you come across this one? Yes. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Come on, dude. I'm a tech bro. <laughs> so the the point that Paul Gray makes in this essay, if I can remember the the argument, is that um, imagine someone who collects bus tickets. You know, there are people around the world who just you know make a hobby out of collecting bus tickets, and they try and find and they really, really go really deep, obsessively deep into it, and they just absolutely love it, and they've memorized all the bus timetables and know all the stuff about bus ticket collecting. Yeah. And to them, bus ticket collecting does not feel like work in the slightest. It feels like play. And the point that he's making is that for anyone who is considered genius or very well respected or really successful in whatever field that they're in um, they've they've gotten there because the, that thing has felt like play to them initially like it's been essentially like collecting bus tickets but crucially the people who are successful in it are the, are the ones who have created economic who've, who've been doing something that's economically useful yeah. so bus ticket collecting is not very useful at all but for example if you're if the thing that feels like play to you happens to be graphic design when you're 11 years old or happens to be coding when you're 14 or or anything like that, or even, you know, writing books uh, when you're 15, 16, or how, however old you are, then those are more economically viable solutions to uh, e- e- economically viable options. And there's another thing that I think like Gary Vee said recently, which is that people often ask uh, the, uh, ask the question that, okay, um, if I were to learn to code and in, in order to build this business, how long will it take me? You know, I'll, or, or they say something like, okay, right, I'm going to carve out two hours a day in order to learn to code so that I can do this thing later on. And the point that he makes is that if you're, if you're, if you're having to think in that way, then you should probably think again about doing this thing because for the people who succeed in it, they don't consider it something that, oh, I have to carve out the time to do. They do it because it's fun and it's what they enjoy. And go, and, and if you're enjoying it and it feels like, it feels like play, then you're naturally going to, do far more of it and become far better at it than someone who treats it like work and treats it as something that oh, I have to force myself to carve out two hours for this. Yeah. Um, and Paul Graham goes on to say in this in this essay, he says that that's possibly why he's he's theorizing here that most of these breakthroughs are made by people before they have kids because once you have kids, you have this you know hanging out with the kids thing that actually you actually don't really want to work on your bus ticket collecting. You want to hang out with the kids. Yeah. And th- so therefore, before you have kids is when you can really fully fully explore these these interests. Yeah. And I think partly kind of extending that analogy it's like how you and i developed so many skills while we were in school when we had an absolute ton of free time relative to what we do now yeah um i certainly i'm not, I'm not acquiring skills anywhere with anywhere near the um speed that i used to do in school because when you're in school you can literally devote 10 hours a day to yeah. the pursuit of whatever you want yeah whereas once you once you're at university and you've got loads of work to do or if you have a job you are genuinely limited by time. Okay, so this one's interesting. So embrace accountability and take business risks under your own name. Society will reward you with responsibility, equity, and leverage. Why do you think this is interesting? I think this is interesting because um, I think that unless you've been drinking the Kool-Aid for years, the idea of uh, sort of putting putting your own name out there in particular is particularly odd for a lot of people. And I think this goes back to, I think, episode two, whenever it was, when we talked about, you know, the fear of putting ourselves out there. Uh, and still to this day, I'm getting messages from 
from Instagram and via Instagram from people saying, hey, I want to start a blog, but I don't want it to be my own name. And my response was like, look, man, make it your own name. Don't call it, you know, drmedtech.com. Don't call it, you know, uh, uh, aspiring medicine to be or, you know, things like that, which is like a surprisingly large number of blogs and Instagram accounts that, that do this sort of stuff. Just do it under your own name. It feels scary initially, but, you know, Naval then goes on to say the most accountable people have singular public and risky brands, Oprah, Trump, Kanye, Elon. Um, yeah, I think this is just em- embracing embracing being being public and being public under your own name rather than under a pseudonym or, or whatever. I think has a lot of value. At least it has for me. I don't know about you. I think I think I agree with what you're saying. I, I doubt I don't think he his thing about under your own name is quite as explicit as your thing of like have your name on your blog. <laughs> I think it's it's not quite that explicit, but it's it's sort of like. Yeah, it's sort of like taking responsibility. Yeah, you'll get rewarded when you are the person responsible and accountable for this thing, you know? Um, and it's kind of scary that like, oh man, if I'm like responsible or accountable for this, if it goes badly, then that's on me. But that is like the only, uh, yeah, that that's how, how the society will re- reward you for that. I think that he talks a lot about leverage, and I think leverage is another really good idea. Okay, what, so he's 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 got this quote from Arch- Arch- Archimedes: "Give me a lever long enough and a place to stand, and I will move the earth." Fortunes require leverage. Business leverage comes from capital, people, and products with no marginal cost of replication, like code and media. Uh, what what do you mean by leverage, and why why is that important? Yeah, I think it's just used in a ton of like different places, and like you know, I intuitively understand what it means from having sort of seen it used in lots of different places. Uh, but essentially, it's a, I think the Archimedes thing is uh, is particularly good because uh, I. You know, have physics, right? Like, if you have a uh, a fulcrum and a lever. So, if you have like a, if you have like, I guess people know what a lever is, right? Yeah, people know what a lever is. If you have this, like, if you have a lever, then you can sort of uh, lift something that's really, really heavy, even if you can't lift it with your own hands. So, you know, if you have like a really long stick, then you can kind of a really long stick and something to kind of like balance it against, like a seesaw almost. Um, like if you have like a really imbalanced seesaw and you're like on the long bit and something else is on the short bit, you can actually lift really heavy stuff. Um, and it, it, it's, yeah, that's kind of literally what leverage means. And it's kind of like finding ways, I guess, yeah, le- leverage is sort of any any way that kind of lets you lift more than you can you physically can uh, just through other means. And so for example, uh, hiring, you know, if you run a company, hiring people kind of gives you leverage because it means you can sort of it means the company can do a lot more stuff without you directly you know for example you personally have 24 hours in a day you hire 10 people you now have 240 hours of uh, hours of work uh, hours of like you know whatever under your control sort of you know yeah. obviously no one works 24 hours a day you're not controlling your employees or whatever but like yeah broadly like the ability to get other people to work for you is is it sort of gives you leverage i guess in finance the ability to kind of you know trade on borrowed money gives you leverage because you know if you have if you have a tenor you can only buy one share of this stock if you can borrow 100 100 quid from your mate then now you can buy like uh you know 100 shares of the stock yeah i mean like that's why like mortgages are such a powerful thing because mortgages allow pretty much anyone well you know pretty much anyone who can afford it to leverage their money in a way that they can't with any other thing like with a mortgage when you're buying a house you can say hey look i've got twenty thousand pounds and that's all i have but the bank is going to lend me the other four hundred thousand pounds to buy this house yep and that is an insane amount of leverage and so if the value of the house increases by you know let's say 20 percent, you've still only borrowed four hundred thousand from the bank therefore you can pay that back and suddenly you've made like you know double your money or triple your money yeah based on the fact that you've leveraged up yeah yeah essentially you've put twenty thousand in but if if property prices go up by twenty percent you get twenty percent of four hundred and twenty thousand not twenty percent of just the twenty thousand that you put in and that that's kind of this idea of leverage 
Oh, this is interesting. So, um, capital and labor are permissioned leverage. Everyone is chasing capital, but someone has to give it to you. Everyone is trying to lead, but someone has to follow you. So what he's saying is that you need someone's permission to acquire you know, uh, money leverage and labor leverage and that you actually find people to give you money or find people to work for you. Yeah. But he says that he then says that code and media are permissionless leverage. They're the leverage behind the newly rich. You can create software and media that works for you while you sleep. Yeah. And that's pretty much like my whole kind of business model outside of medicine. Uh, it used to be software through kind of like our, well, I suppose it's, it's, it still is software partly through, through the online courses and through the online question banks and through, you know, the business. Um, and then there's the media, the YouTube videos and now these podcasts now that we're sponsored by skillshow.com forward slash not overthinking. Uh, if you guys want to sign up, um, you can create software and media that works for you while you sleep. And that is like, the, there was an idea I came across recently, which is about investing. Um, and you know how when, when investing, people say you should diversify your assets. So for example, real estate would be an asset class and stocks and shares would be an asset class. This article or whatever it was talked about things like digital products and online courses and things like that also being an asset class and YouTube videos that you make are also an asset class because mm -hmm. they're literally making you money while you're sleeping, which is what an investment is. Like you've put that investment of time and money in initially to create it. And then for zero further cost, you're kind of reaping the rewards from it. Yeah. Um, and I think like for me, a big part of this goal of achieving uh, financial independence, financial freedom is to create as many of these uh, hopefully, you know, independent, but things that uh, where one thing helps helps the others in this in this portfolio all of these different things are in a way code and media leverage that that hopefully generates money while i sleep yeah which means that i'm not reliant on the full-time job that i've got in order to to make me money so i think kind of when i first came across that idea via tim ferris's the four-hour work week that was completely game-changing for me and really informed the way that i spent the next 10 years of my life yeah um realizing the power of code and media oh this one's interesting uh i think we should approach the end of it now but set and enforce an aspirational personal hourly rate if Fixing a problem will save less than your hourly rate. Ignore it. If if outstanding a task, if sorry, if outsourcing a task will cost less than your hourly rate, outsource it. Um, this is something that we have that we talked about in the episode about treating your personal life like a business. Yep. And how many gains you get when you realize that actually, you know, I value my time at fifteen pounds an hour. Therefore, if I can pay someone to do something that I'd rather not do for ten pounds an hour, that would be a good exchange. Yep. Um, and I don't know if she's still awake, but I think this is something that our mum does struggle with <laughs> quite a fair bit. Just like recognizing the money value of time. Um, yeah, I back that. I think this one, uh, one of the further ones is nice. Become the best in the world at what you do and keep redefining what you do until this is true. And uh, yeah, I think this is another really powerful idea. And I think if there is any generally applicable career advice that basically applies to you know, generally applicable, it is that, you know, try and like, try and be the only person that, that does what you do. Don't try and like be the best in some highly competitive game. And uh, I think... Uh, Tyler Cowen has a good bit on this. Tyler Cowen is an economist, uh, you know, has a very popular blog called Marginal Revolution. He's also written a bunch of books. He has a podcast called Conversations with Tyler. He's like very you know, forefront of like, you know, thought leader when it comes to economics and just general uh, intellectualism, if you will. Okay. And, uh, you know, he's an economics professor at like George Mason University, which, you know, it's not like, uh, I think, all right, I might be talking out of my ass here. I think as a result of Tyler Cowen, this, it, Tyler Cowen, has uh, significantly increased the reputation of the George Mason University Economics Department. Um, but obviously, George Mason University does not have the same brand value as, you know, Harvard or Stanford or whatever. Um, and he, and, and Tyler says that, like, you know, uh, es yeah, essentially, like, yeah, stop trying to go after the, you know, the Harvard or the, uh, I, I don't 
don't know. I feel like I'm probably mis- misrepresenting him. So Tyler doesn't say this. This is what I've taken away from what Tyler <laughs> said, um, which is essentially like stop trying to find the Harvard or the Stanford and try to stop trying to get into those, which is this like thing that's very highly competitive uh, and oversubscribed, um, you know, but, you know, find find the thing that there is only one place that does this thing and go and, you know, do that thing, you know, like stop trying to be, do you know what I mean? I know what you mean. Um, this was, is, is very, very similar to advice that I was giving someone who, who came to visit me uh, last week. Uh, he's a he's a medical student. Let's call him John. Uh, and John's whole thing was that he he came around he came around around to my house after getting in touch with me, and he just wanted loads of advice about how to do really well in his his third year exams. And I gave him you know all the advice that I could, I mean, you know, with the various caveats that you know this kind of worked for me. Maybe you know <laughs> you know take the useful bits and, and and leave the rest and stuff. Yeah. And then after we kind of discussed this at length, I I kind of asked him that right. So what's the point of all this? Like, why do you want to get a really high mark in your exams at the end? end of the year and he was like oh i don't know i mean i didn't do that well in my first and second year and i just thought you know in my third year there would this would be the time to to do really well and i was like okay why like and he was like oh i don't know just like personal pride i guess i was like okay are you, are you happy with the way that you lived life in first and second year and he was like no not really actually i think i probably worked too hard and i still didn't get really good results and i was like do you do you really think that getting good exam results at the end of third year is going to lead to happiness and fulfillment and he was like no but you know i want to ultimately become a plastic surgeon and i know that in eight years time i'm going to be applying to this really competitive job as a plastic surgeon and so if i can do really well in my exams in 2019 then in 2028 when i'm applying for this job i'll have a few extra points compared to the other people applying for it and i was like right (laughs) (laughs) okay john um and i kind of explained my uh sort of view on on this topic which has obviously been informed by all of the kool-aid that i've drunk over the years and I asked John what other stuff he does kind of on the side. And I know yeah. you don't like that sort of question, but John kind of mentioned that he's really involved in his church and he's, he's he, he really enjoys like drawing and art. And he's got this like whole art journal where, where, where he draws stuff. And I was like, great, let's talk about that. Um, and I asked him if he'd ever considered making it public. And he was like, oh no, I haven't really considered that. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just for me. And what I suggested to John is that, look, man, you know, you're, it was, it's, it's sort of like in that book by, um, I'm blanking on the name, but the book, uh, The Third Door, which is, I'm, I'm not sure if we talked about it on the podcast. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think we have, but there's a really good book called The Third Door. Oh, Alex Banayan. Uh, that's what he, and it's, it's written by this like 19 year old guy or like 22 or something, you know, in, in that ballpark. Uh, and he realizes at the age of 19 that he doesn't know what to do with his life. And therefore he goes on a mission to interview the world's most famously successful people, people like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett and stuff, and ask them for careers advice that they would give to people who are 19 years old. And this quest takes him all around the world to find these people and he turns it into a really good book. But the reason it's called the third door is the analogy he says is that um, life is like a nightclub in that there are three doors. There are always three ways to get in. The first door is the door that everyone stands in queue and the and the line extends for like three blocks and you're waiting in line to get in. Yeah. The second door is for the billionaires and the celebrities that can just slip in because, you know, they know people. Whereas the third door is, you know, you sneak in and around the back alley, you open the, the window that's a little bit open, you sneak into the kitchens, you make friends with the wait staff and you kind of get in via the third door. Yeah. And his point is that the the most successful people, the most famously successful people, whether it's Bill Gates landing his first deal with Microsoft or whether it's, you know, Steven Spielberg becoming the youngest director in Hollywood history, they all got into their respective fields via the third door. Yeah. Like they found an alternative way and that wasn't competing with what everyone else was doing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I told this analogy to this guy, John, and he was like, he kind of completely blew his mind because he, I think after this conversation, he, he said that that conversation has really kind of changed his perspective, at least it did at the time. I don't know if he's going to revert to this. Yeah. But he realized that his whole life he'd been playing this first door game of trying to compete with other 
people for a very kind of select few positions as a plastic surgery trainee, for example. Yeah. And just kind of accepted that having that goal will bring him fulfillment and happiness in some way, even though working towards that goal was not making him happy at all. Yeah. And was actively making him unhappy because he was working too hard in order to achieve this lofty goal of, you know, in eight years time, I want to be a plastic surgeon, whatever. Yeah. Um, so what I suggested to him is that, you know, why not just become the best in the world at, for example, you know, plastic surgery illustrations with really good paintings and post them on a website. There's not many people doing that sort of thing. I know maybe two surgeons who do like plastic surgery illustrations and they are world famous amongst plastic surgeons and their illustrations go on the front cover of all the plastic surgery journals and they get, you know, flown around the world doing talks about how hand surgery is changing and yes, stuff like that. And there's only like two of them doing it. So yeah. it's very feasible to, to literally become the best in the world at plastic surgery illustrations, yeah. which is a field where there's not many people. But that, you know, even if you are optimizing for, you know, applying for a plastic surgery job when you're in, in 2028, just the fact that you're world fa a world famous plastic surgery illustrator is going to do so much more for you than the fact that you maybe got a first class rather than a 2-1 in your third year 10 years ago. And maybe that'll give you one extra point over the yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think this sort of attitude of try and be the best in the world of what you're doing yeah, yeah, and yeah. define it so narrowly that there are yeah. so few people competing in that category. Yeah. I think that's just completely game changing. Yeah, I, 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 I really like the, the third door thing. Actually, if you'll allow me to indulge myself for a moment here, oh, I think I think I have, a, I have a good third door story from when I was 17. Oh, yeah. uh, you'll recall uh, uh, back when Nokia still used to make uh, phones, uh, they had a competition on their face. They, uh, they just released uh, the uh, Nokia Lumia 920, uh, an amazing uh, smartphone running uh, it was Windows. Windows Phone. Yeah, Windows Windows, yeah. Phone. I was trying to think, is it, was it called Windows Mobile? No, <laughs> no Windows <laughs> that, Mobile was like... That was the stupid PDA. I 2005. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, Nokia released this really cool new phone. Uh, I, I really wanted it. And their Facebook page was running a competition uh, where they were going to give away, I think they were going to give away, uh, it's either one or five of these phones. I think it was, I think it was five. They're going to go five phones. Uh, and to enter the competition, you had to tell them why you should win one of these phones. Okay. And now, you know, in this in this case, door number one, you know, the, fir the first door is tell them why you want the phone, you know. Hey, Nokia, I really like the 920. I, I really like the screen. <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> That's the first door. The second door is, I don't know, maybe you know the person organizing the competition yeah. <laughs> and they can hustle you the phone all right now i this is still one of the uh, one of the, my sort of proudest moments and the things that like i don't think i've pulled anything like this off ever in my life since right i basically my thought process was look there is no way i'm going to stand in the queue to enter this nightclub <laughs> you know i'm not i'm not going to straight uh, there's no way i can just tell them hey i want this phone for this reason uh and expect to go anywhere with that because that is that's like the standard thing everyone else is going to be doing that i need to find sort of essentially a way to stand out and a way to be sort of playing a different game than everyone else and so i thought okay i'm going to write a rhyming poem about why i should win this thing and in my head i thought okay there's like a i thought maybe there's like a 50 percent chance they don't read any of the submissions and they just give it out randomly in that case I'm as much of a chump as everyone else. I probably won't get the phone. In the event that they do actually read the submissions, there is no way this, you know, there is no way this won't stand out. And so I wrote a rhyming poem um, and it was genius. Uh, I, I worked backwards from the final line because I wanted I wanted the final few words to be the Nokia Lumia 920. I worked backwards <laughs> from that, like figuring out good, good, good rhymes and stuff. Uh, and yeah, I won the phone. And that was like absolutely my blood. That's like the only time where I've had like a very solid thought process and plan. And the plan, it's gone according to plan like nothing nothing in my life has gone that well that 
And that like justifiedly well. There was no luck in that at all. This was a prize for it to win a phone and there was no luck in that. The, the, that was the plan. It worked. It was sick. The third door. Love it. Um, forgive me for uh, blowing my own trumpet there. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing if I can find, find your poem. Really? Yeah. Because I feel... Mate, if we can find it, that'd be great. I think it was really good. Plot. I think I, I can remember bits of it. I, I, I actually don't know how to use Facebook anymore to find photos. Like where on earth are photos on Facebook these days? Do you have the thing? Um, oh, wait. If I can somehow search my very old hot mail email inbox or outbox whatever you call it where on earth are facebook hotmail.com mate if we can find this this is gonna make you so happy <laughs> i love reliving stupid stuff like this man <laughs> okay i think it's it's in a one note somewhere all oh. right i'm in my mailbox okay i'm gonna see if i can find it on my because i feel like i posted this on my wall Did back, you? back when wall photos was a thing did you that's very nice of you um i think partly is because we had to pretend that i was winning it because there was something about me being old enough to enter the competition oh i do remember, I yes. remember this yeah 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 there was something around that wasn't there yeah timeline photos maybe you actually posted on your wall you wouldn't have put that wouldn't have been the submission the submission would have been via an email that i would have sent i remember having the photo of your poem and the phone or something in on my wall somewhere i'm saying oh, cool. i'm saying i can yeah, find, dude, it now. find it find it this is gonna be one long ass podcast <laughs> good job we trim the silences and we can't tell people that anymore <laughs> It was it, it was quite funny a few weeks ago when uh, James, our friend, messaged saying that, oh my God, this podcast is great. It sounds like you guys like are radio trained because you're just kind of going just like one one line straight after the other. <laughs> and I was like, oh, James. <laughs> oh, man. If only you knew about the Mate. strip silence feature. Of yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm just search for Lumion 920 on my old Hotmail account. Come on. That was the thing. Well, oh, I've got it. No, really? Timeline. For, oh, no. I don't think the poem was on the photo. No, the poem isn't on the photo. This is the screenshot. We know you've been waiting. We would like to say congratulations to Vicky Huston, Cormac Hall, Ali Abdal, <laughs> Peter Robinson, and David McRae, who each won a Lumia 920. <laughs> when was this? This was 24th October 2012. Yeah. Damn, long time ago. And I, I commented 17, uh, seven years ago. Oh, no, so, so James Troy commented, F no Sahel, and now you. I need to enter these competitions. Oh, yeah, because Sahel won like the Lumia 800, like not, not yeah. long before that. And I, said, and I replied saying, in fairness, Tame won it through wit rather than dumb luck. Nice. Yeah, of course I did. Oh, bro, open up your laptop. Let me search on the laptop. The mobile website for Outlook is being really slow. There you go. This isn't even going to be worth it for anyone listening. No, it, this it, is it, purely for me at this point. <laughs> purely self-indulgent. Dude, what's, oh, it's logged in. Uh, oh, and then I've got the final Naval tweet that we can end with as well once we've yeah, got this. One. We're going to stay silent now so that it'll look as if you've just found it. Dude, this has been a massive flop. I don't think it's traceable. It wasn't. It wasn't an email submission for the competition. I think you had to like do it some random form on their website. So I don't have an email record of my poem. I submitted on this thing when they replied saying you won the thing. They didn't have any mention of like the poem or anything. Oh, I mean, I'm gutted. That's absolutely tragic. That is absolutely devastating. And you sure that you didn't email it to anyone? Because back in the day, maybe um, what in 2012 was emailing stuff to people a thing. That was a thing. I think I feel like Facebook Messenger was the way most people communicated. Facebook did this then. thing where they like I know you can't find facebook messages from 2012 they just don't exist right anyway um oh, i'm so gutted that's that's really sad i'm i'm very sorry to hear that ah it's my life's crowning achievement lost in the ether of the internet what the hell anyway i think we should end this podcast with the final tweet in naval's tweet storm which is that 
Um, but just as a reminder, uh, the, the tweet storm is called How to Get Rich Without Getting Lucky. And we've talked about some of the tweets in it um, and the way that it's kind of uh, relevant to our own lives and our own thoughts on it. His final tweet is, when you're finally wealthy, you'll realize that it wasn't what you were seeking in the first place, but that's for another day. Good stuff. And I think that's a good place to, to end this pod. Yeah. I think that's pretty good insight as well. That when you're finally wealthy, you realize it wasn't what you were I seeking. Everyone for. says this, but it's a, nice, yeah. it's a nice end to this tweet storm, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone says it for a reason, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I back it. I'm not disagreeing with the thing. I'm just saying, like, he's not. It's not very novel from Naval. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> very good. Thank you. So, do you have any uh, novel insights of the week? Uh, I think I do. I think I do. Bring up my Twitter. Well, while, while you're bringing up your Twitter, uh, I have an insight of this week, and that is the three date rule uh, that <laughs> I uh, sort of arrived at after discussion with a friend over dinner uh, earlier today. And that is that. Do you want to also add that I arrived at it independently before that? Uh, potentially you did, but it I've might. Like, I arrived at it like six months ago. But yeah, but you never told me, you never mentioned it on the podcast. So, you know. Fine, yeah. It doesn't exist. <laughs> it doesn't exist exactly. Much like your poem, <laughs> which you're just making up at this point. <laughs> The insight, my insight of the week is is the three date rule. Now, this is a rule that helps us navigate the uh, the treacherous and somewhat uh, unpredictable waters of of modern dating. And that is that you know when the uh, the conundrum or the problem is that when you're going on dates with someone, you often don't really know. Like like after the first date, like I, I think one date, one like hanging out over dinner or doing something, is really not enough time to get to know someone to the point where you can feasibly make an informed decision about. About whether you want to continue seeing them again um even i think I, th- I think even if it goes really badly uh however however you define that i think it's still worth meeting up at least a second time unless of course it's like you know really really bad and i obviously i'm saying this from position of male privilege and that i never really need to worry about my own safety on dates blah 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 um but essentially the three date rule is that when that is that if you go on a first date with someone you should go or you should from your end be open to going on at least two more up to the point where you've been on three dates with them before you make any kind of decision about whether to continue seeing them or to not see them anymore uh and i think that's like a good framework because i've been on several first dates recently and a couple of second dates but actually i haven't been on a third date in a very long time and now that I've got this sort of rule in my mind as, you know, I'm going to actively reach out to these people who are currently on date number two and think about whether we can go on date number three if they're still interested and kind of make a decision from there. Because I think I think it's, it's, it's useful to have these sorts of rules just to help help navigate these waters a little bit better. Yeah, I back it, man. Like I said, I, I, I would like to stake my claim to this theory about six months ago. Well, you, you know, um, in medicine, they say that if you don't document it, it never happens. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I think this is a, it's a good application of the uh, low social optionality uh, theory. So it's sort of applied to dating. I mean, we talked about this in uh, was episode three, episode four, whenever the uh, low social optionality episode was, which is that you know, uh, if you have this mindset of like complete, you know, abundance of choice, like, you know, I can, you know, I'm constantly evaluating the situation and I can uh, decide to back out anytime I want. Um it's uh, I, I don't think it lends itself very well to human relationships and you know, I gave examples in that podcast episode about plenty of times where uh, my sort of initial impressions of someone or like you know uh, my the initial day or two that I spent with someone I didn't think we'd be friends you know they didn't seem like the kind of person uh, who I'd be friends with uh, and then after that it turned out that you know uh, we actually had a lot in common we already got on blah 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 uh, and so it, it's kind of the thing about first impressions I suppose and so like yeah I back I back the three date minimum because it takes time for people to warm up to 
each other become comfortable. Uh, you know, it takes time to sort of uh, find the uh, nuances about a person that might draw you to them. Um, yeah, basically, if, if you want to make a call after a first date, you're putting uh, a lot of faith in, in your own essentially first impression of someone. Cool. So that was my insight of the week. What about yours? <laughs> Uh, I read a good article this week. I shared it with you. Um, I think you'll probably write your email newsletter about it tomorrow. Uh, no, I won't. Oh, you won't? No. Damn. Okay, fine. All right. Fine. I'm, I might do, depending on whether I can think of anything, <laughs> think of anything else to write about. Man, trying to play play hardball with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't need your articles that you share. <laughs> uh, this article is called uh, Overcoming Your Demons by a guy called Morgan Housel, uh, at Morgan Housel on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> classic tech bro <laughs> oh my god like no one even knows how to spell that link in the show notes link in the show notes it's called Overcoming Your Demons and uh, this is an article about um, Morgan's uh, essentially struggle with stuttering uh, and so all throughout his life uh, this guy has uh, had a stutter and he said there's some interesting statistics in there. he says about 20% of kids stutter most outgrow it by age 5 about 1% still stutter by age 10 and a lucky 0.1% stutter into adulthood with some small fraction of that being chronic enough to affect their daily life i am one of them he said uh and basically he's been stuttering he said he, he was stuttering as long as he'd been talking um he says since words have been coming out of my mouth i've struggled to push through simple sounds and spotted through basic words maybe you've noticed maybe you haven't uh and he says that the worst thing about stuttering is how little people know about it um and you know people kind of it, it's something that you know it, it, you know it's the kind of thing that you know, i guess as a, you know, when you're younger people just kind of mean and stuff it's the kind of thing they might make fun of uh, and it is the kind of thing that's sort of uh, sort of mocked in general I think and now society is moving towards a place where you know this kind of like ableism is sort of frowned upon and I think that's really good but uh, yeah it's this thing that most people don't really have any knowledge of and he, and he says that uh, this is a particularly uh, sort of tough issue because uh, well he, he says stutterers have no spokesperson no awareness month it's so unknown and secretive that it's nearly acceptable to heckle it in public in ways that would be unthinkable for other disabilities people comfort discriminate against what they're unfamiliar with and stuttering is unfamiliar to most people in 33 years I've never met another chronic stutterer uh, and he thinks this is really misleading um, and he thinks the reason stuttering seems uncommon is because most stutterers don't talk much because they have this stutter and he, he talks about how like as a kid growing up he, he basically assumed that anything involving any kind of talking or public speaking is just something that's cut off to him for his whole life and he talks about how you know when he was in, in secondary school the teacher sort of called on him in the class to read something up in front of the class and it was it just went absolutely terribly he like you know he couldn't get the word the out of his mouth uh and so he went back to his desk and had a cry and people laughed at him uh and you know various other examples of this kind of thing um and he says the the, the whole point here is that you know if you know him now and I, I only knew him through twitter like he's a very accomplished investor and writer and stuff like that i only knew him through this sort of thing and even if you know him now you won't suspect he has been on any kind of profound journey to overcome his stuttering uh because he's figured out lots of work around so, you know, when he talks on the fly, he is like trying to, you know, trying to foresee whether he's going to run into any problem words or problem sounds. Uh, and on the fly, he, he sort of tries to alter his sentences so that he doesn't run into any particular sounds that he he's bad at saying. Uh, and so he, he says that, you know, this has been like a 30 year long journey.
journey for me to figure out these tricks and these hacks to not sound like I have a stutter. But it's, this has been like a chronic debilitating illness in my life that basically no one knows about. And he thinks that like, his whole point is basically, you know, uh, everyone, everyone will have these kind of challenges no one knows about. Everyone has gone through something or is going through something and you won't know about it. So A, just be nicer to people and B, you know, it's kind of uh, at the end of the year, people are sort of reflecting on, oh, what did I achieve this year and stuff? And people are posting on Twitter about like, oh, I, you know, I got this promotion or like, you know, this thing that I, this outward external thing that I've done got this kind of recognition or whatever. And, and he says that like, you know, his most proud achievement in life is like overcoming his stuttering problem. And like all the most really important achievements are going to be these internal things that no one knows about. No one needs to know about, you know, it, it's it's not going to be an outward thing. And so, you know, when you're, when you're reading these sort of things of like, oh, this is what I achieved in 2019, uh, you know, take it with a pinch of salt. That stuff doesn't matter. It, it's, it's all sort of uh, the, the internal battles. I think it was really good. We'll, we'll link it in the, in the show notes. Okay. So it sounds like you're doing the show notes because you've promised to link a lot of things. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Why not? All right. Good stuff. Well, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Uh, uh, it would well, be, be interesting to hear people's feedback on this format. Yeah. I, th- I feel like it's been very long and rambly. Uh, it's over an hour long. We uh, probably come down to about an hour after we remove the pauses. I don't know if it's been interesting to people. Yeah. Let us know what you think. Uh, email us at hi, not overthink, not overthinking.com. We're, fa- we're fairly behind on emails. Um, we'll do it. Uh, but yeah, we genuinely want to hear what people think about this format. Uh, if it's good, then it's great because then I don't have to get anxious before every podcast because worst case scenario, we go through someone's tweets. Uh, <laughs> so really hoping people like this format. Yeah. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs> and we'll see you in, in the next one. Bye-bye.